Thank you for listening to today's episode of Hard Truth. We are joined by John Munitz. Many of you know him as the president of the Hill of Roses Network and host of their popular YouTube show, the same name, or aka Thor for short, as well as a project manager. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Yeah, for sure. I'm actually pretty excited to have you on. Um, Other than Barrington Martin, you're one of the first... um, pretty openly public political figure uh, that's wanting to dive into personal things. So thank you. (laughs) Oh, you're very welcome. I think it's honestly just a very human factor that we have to be a little bit more transparent if we actually want to get to deeper root causes. So I think exposing our own personal flaws also lets people see we're not trying to masquerade perfection here. We're trying to be honest with you. Uh, And I think leveling with the people is real. And I think that's needed. For sure. Um, That's probably one of my favorite parts of certain political figures is just their uh, willingness to appear human to the populace. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's who we're trying to represent. I think we have to act it. Uh, I think, you know, we obviously want to display our best traits. I would say someone who is running for office and serving for office has a higher standard of responsibility than probably a general citizen. You are trying to represent the best of us, not just us. Uh, so I think that is something that's needed when you're actually trying to run for office, but you always have to be honest and people are inherently, you know, all their greatness comes with flaws. Uh, and we have to encourage people to bring out those great parts and hopefully minimize the flaws, but we have to learn from them and they're real and unavoidable. Very, very true. So let's get some, uh, some background on you for those who aren't familiar. Where are you from originally? I'm from uh, New York. I am from this place called Suffern. Uh, I went to, you know, Suffern High School and all throughout my life, uh, you know, no moving in between. It was growing up at Rose Hill Road, which was actually part of the reason why I actually came to the Hill of Roses as a name is growing up on Rose Hill Road. Um, And so, you know, that's where I've come from. And, you know, Due to COVID, that is where I am also currently today. So this is, you know, been a real great place to be able to grow up. And I'm actually really happy. We actually have a great representative that came into office this year on national stage. We got Mondaire Jones this year. So I I really love the area that I live in. I'm not saying it's not flawed uh, because I've actually been deep into that when I was growing up because my mom is a very prominent local political activist. And we've had, you know, strife corruption within our town. And so my first exposure to politics and when I really started to get engaged was watching her try and pursue, you know, A, uh, trying to get him, you know, out of office through election uh, by supporting others. And then B, then there was the actual legal processes because there was deep rife corruption when it came to the management of the lending processes and development. They were in the developer's hands, hook, line, and sinker. And so there was prosecution to be had on corruption charges that were pursued in court, and the person was indicted on this and arrested on these charges. It took a long amount of time, but that doesn't mean that the corruption ends with one person. And so we constantly have to work with the town because there are these beholden interests and block votes that are leading the town to be very irresponsible. Uh, So, you know, that was my first exposure and that's where I come from. And what age were you when, uh, when she was doing that? 
Uh, I would say I was like it's she was doing it in like when I was you know late elementary school, but I wasn't really like observing it as much. Uh, but you know I was certainly paying a lot more attention closer to like when I was in eighth and ninth grade. Uh, you know, we would start to like watch the daily show together. There would then come conversations of some of the things that she was working on as well, uh, that was politically related. So that was kind of my first exposure to really getting into politics. Yeah, I have, um, I have two young kids, a three-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. And, um, not going to lie, whenever I started getting into politics, and probably just because of the climate with Trump and everything, I was terrified to wear my political gear outside with them. Um, and before COVID happened, obviously, COVID threw a wrench into anything I might want to do uh, with other people. But I was thinking of the logistics of having kids around at political rallies and things, and just it scared me. So um I've had them on Zoom calls with the the candidate I was volunteering for, which everybody by now probably knows was Andrew Yang. Um, and so they've they've seen him. They've actually like waved at him and said hi. But, um, you know, I just couldn't bring myself to have any more uh, bring them into it any more than that. Um, and I'm not sure when I will, but I'm sure I'm not done being involved volunteering for political figures. <laughs> So it's interesting to hear from someone who's um, seen that and been with a parent that was in the middle of uh, of things, granted a different time, but still. Yeah, it was a formative moment. I think, honestly, if it was just left to the schooling system, I would not have had much of a civic knowledge. Uh, she was someone who actually got me engaged in the idea of, you know, having a voice in our representation and caring about what societal issues are. Um, you know, we didn't have anything like that in our schooling system. And I don't think there was anything like that in any of the, you know, extracurriculars that I was really doing as well. So yeah, uh, it was a very important influence that she had in that regard. Yeah, I, uh, I don't remember my school having anything like that either that, that teaches you anything about uh, politics, policies, your representatives. Um, I mean, short of the history of how America was formed, they don't really go into uh, your own duty to, to you know, go out and vote and uh, know who your representatives are and why you should know that. I mean, the closest thing to anything they could have had that could be used in that realm is a debate team, but not even the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's certainly so. Um, but I, I don't know. I think, frankly... When it comes to just the nature and development of my politics, you know, that was really the early focus on kind of the, the town and the general nature of just, you know, kind of, it was kind of an entertainment product, but it was like kind of the absurdity of the system. And it was almost the entertainment. Like it wasn't really a grappling or, you know, diving deep on policy. It was kind of just like watching the show in a way, as I think a lot of people actually kind of consume the product today. They're like, I'm watching this for the soap opera of it all. Um, but, you know, then I kind of started to try and formulate my own ideas, I would say, in that like high school kind of period of time later in life. And I would say it was probably a little bit more actually libertarian at that point in time um, before going off to like college, 
where I actually, at that point, wanted to study, you know, economics. That was what I came into college wanting to study uh, because I, I really wanted to think about, you know, how, you know, my skills in mathematics, which was something I was good at, as well as my enjoyment of my one economics course could potentially be applied, whether that meant maybe going into finance one day or potentially just being an economist. If that could be like studying the economy in the political sense, that was when I was starting to get involved in that. But then, you know, when I took the courses, you actually learn some things when you go to college. It's, it's a pretty cool thing. Um, and then, you know, you actually can learn concepts that can actually lead you to see why these common sense investments and basic stimulus and regulation can actually have beneficial effects. Um, but, you know, again, this was kind of more in, in the theoretical. I was thinking more in a business sense of mind. I still was not really much focused on federal politics uh, really until like 2016, frankly, and the Bernie Sanders race. Bernie Sanders finally spoke to me when I got to watch a debate. The first one, the one that had like Martin O'Malley. I got, I was home with my parents and I got to be able to see that debate. Uh, and you know, I frankly was, had that call to action. He kind of spoke to this core root issue that had been feeling like had felt so connected in different points of my life and like seeing the corruption in the system and how we needed to have like a mass movement of people. And we, he was actually speaking directly to the young people of America to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, he actually engaged me in thinking about this and how we can try and transform our country and help people. Um, and I think that was a really important step to, you know, me engaging where I am today. There's obviously a lot that's come from me being Bernie Sanders to Andrew Yang, where I am today. But, you know, I, I think that was really the formative moment that said, you know what, I got to get involved in federal politics and not just think about it in the theoretical and how it could be applied to my career. Um, potentially, I think it needed to be, how do you cause actually a movement to occur? And what are the best solutions that we need to implement? And what are the tactics we need to do to be able to get those implemented? Yeah, I, um, I think the same thing you just described happened to me with Andrew Yang. Um, so what, what generation are you in? If you don't mind me asking how I'm, old you I'm, are. <laughs> I'm like the youngest versions of millennial. Oh, okay. So you're younger than me. Yeah. Um, I'm 26. <laughs> well, I am 30. I turned 30 this year. Um, so in 2016, I was still very much in the politics or not for me kind of situation. I was very much raised in the Southern household, which I'm not sure it's exclusive to the South at this point. But, you know, we don't talk about politics at family dinner because people are going to get mad. It's just not something you bring up. Um, you support silently, which I think formed a lot of habits in me that um, I, I can't make change, you know, just my voice isn't going to help anything. It doesn't matter if I get involved, you know. Uh, I've seen a lot of people mention it since I got involved with the Yang Gang. Um, and my viewpoint on that has absolutely changed uh, because of the waves that Yang Gang has made. Um, I do remember in 2016, 
my family being very pro-Trump and me thinking Bernie was the better choice there. But again, remaining silent, not saying anything and just watching how it played out. And I remember the sinking feeling whenever the results were announced and not really understanding why I felt that way. But in the coming months, it was it became very obvious in years, I should say. Um, and then when I heard Andrew Yang, it was like, OK, this is this is it for me. So it, it lit the fire for me as well, where I spent nearly 30 years of my life trying to avoid it. <laughs> I think, frankly, there has definitely been like almost like a mental shift in kind of going from movement to movement too. Um, in, in the Bernie campaign, you know, it was first when I was doing it in 2016, I was like the lone sheep of the family supporting Bernie as well. But unlike your parents who supported Trump, they, my parents were supporting Clinton. Um, so, you know, I had to deal with that, you know, like almost like maddening feeling. There's like, there's this feeling when you are kind of like in that movement of the pointing at the establishment as a core, like almost like evil that you must, you know, point and call out. Like, it's almost like a, a, a madness when people are like, hey, like, I don't care in a way. Like you tell them this fact and that fact and that fact, and they just like don't care and they start getting mad at you because yeah, they facts don't matter because they basically presumed this inevitability and that by you saying these things you're gonna hurt her for the general election and i'm like we're in a primary let's talk things <laughs> out like what wh why aren't these valid like criticisms wh why don't you care about these issues and it, it comes down to this basic almost like urge from the Democratic Party to basically just favor just experience. Like, and that is the root of establishment. It's really, where have you been? They really value that more than the actual ideas. And I think that's been a real thing that we've had to grapple with over time. And I think when, when we came to like Yang compared to Bernie, I felt that there was a little bit more of a sustainability in that it was not trying to be necessarily a direct antagonism with the establishment, but it is actually trying to forge a new path that both sides can actually try to join. And I think it's because you have to focus on these actual policies. And I think that's really core and that you have to try to be as Yang has been, kind of this positive figure who has not been trying to attack either sides of the party, but try to call out general, how do we say, just things that are not resonating with the voters right now. I would say the real like livelihoods of these people, the facts that you say is traditional politics is just not acceptable at this point. Um, I think sometimes that may step on some people because they're the ones that are put in these positions, but it's the actual way the system is built. And he's calling that out instead of going directly at the people constantly. So I think that's important. Obviously there are characters like Trump. He made, you know, very clear that he had to come to support Joe Biden because it's very clear that 
you know, we have to get rid of Trump out of office. But in general, his figure is to not try to do that, but to focus on the solutions and try to bring everyone into understanding why these are the best solutions. And that that in turn is going to be able to build a political movement in itself because we have the correct answers. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I loved. Um, after his campaign ended, I kept volunteering as I could uh, when I had the time for Humanity Forward. And it was always amazing to me watching the support of all of these candidates across the U.S. and just pushing the idea that you can win without having to choose a side or make them happy or be bought out. You can win with the people behind you. And that was proven, um, I believe, with Jermaine Johnson, but correct me if I'm wrong there. Oh, yeah. Um, he, he won his race. Yeah. Okay. So is he? I wasn't too far off there. I haven't been involved with Humanity Forward in a few months. Um, had to give myself a little bit of a break. But uh, yeah, the last I heard, he was doing good. And, and that's what he did. He he ran on the idea that the people could, could help you win rather than a party. Um, and so now... Looking at him, he's proof that, um, you know, at least with him, from what we can see, he's not going to make decisions based on anybody that he owes because they helped him get this or that. And and that's, I think that's what we need, or at least for me, that's how I feel anyway. Um, because I think people have mentioned before they should wear who supports them or who, who funds them on their clothes like NASCAR drivers do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's I think it was Richard Ojeda who suggested something like that. But um, yeah, there was a there was a more than even just that we, we had a lot of victories across the board. But yeah, Jermaine Johnson is quite the character. I think we had let me think we had Marilyn Strickland was another one. We had, I think, Mondaire Jones, the person who's in my district, as I had mentioned before, has been endorsed by Humanity Forward. Um, uh, I think, uh, what was the person in Michigan? Um, H- H- Haley Stevens, I believe, believe it was, I think she was uh, a winner as well. Uh, and then, you know, there were some of the people who were the incumbents who he was, you know, friendly with like the Tim Ryans, the Grace Mangs, the Hickenloopers, but I, you know, I don't want to go that far. There's the people that, you know, we can independently support, uh, compared to, you know, saying, Hey, they're just the best one in this race right now. Like sometimes that's true. And sometimes, you know, in like Tim Ryan's case, I don't agree with a lot of his politics. I'm like policy, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, he's been friendly to our movement. And I think that deserves some, you know, easy recognition to be able to say, People who are supporting our movement and supporting the ideas by, you know, supporting us um, deserve some recognition for doing that. Even if they haven't gone far enough to say, hey, Tim Ryan, like, why not just make the bill permanent? Like, why why haven't we had a just standalone bill on this? Like, now we have Ilhan Omar, who will do that. So I'm happy someone is taking the charge. But, like... I, I'm looking forward to the, seeing this new Congress. There's some cool players that are going to come in. We got Corey Bush. There's so many people who can actually start moving the needle, but we're going to need to put so many more people behind them. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's There's so many to count. I actually remember when I was watching all of them, I just lost count of how many people were, um, were getting pushed through as far as the ones that were um, – openly supported by humanity forward but then there there's quite a few who've been very um 
open and and um, communicated with the Yang gang and the movement and supportive that I backed that were not. Um, yeah, there was a lot know, of losses we yeah. faced this year. So I, this is the worst part of, you know, doing what I do is, you know, this is a hard game to be able to defeat the incumbents. And mm-hmm. I interviewed more of these congressional challengers than any other network. I had over 60. And, you know, here's the sad part of it all. Every single one of them lost. Every single one. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that. It's, uh, you would think out of so many, such a high number, there would have been at least one. (laughs) One. And, And here's the thing. It's not like there weren't any competitive races out there. I had in my mind here, here were the people I was really looking forward to on that election day that I was like baffled that they didn't get across. Kara Eastman. I thought she was in the ballpark for a great win there with so many figures behind them from Biden's wing to Bernie's wing with Yang as well. All the, you know, polling was showing a competitive Nebraska second district. I really thought she was going to be a winner that day. She was the one I was like the most certain that was going to be able to try to get a victory. But then we also had people like J.D. Shulton. I thought he had a chance. I know the polling wasn't there, but I thought there was a competitive edge for him to overperform potentially. Um, There was also people like David Kim. I thought he was also, you know, I was thinking there was a certain chance that he was going to be potentially competitive but i think he overperformed a little bit and i think he's gonna beat them next time it's a hard oh, yeah as a first time runner trying to come over but damn he was real close and i'm gonna put it right now he's gonna run again because i think they are continuing to try and build out this pack to run again i really think he's gonna pull it off this time didn't you interview barrington martin as well i did uh, I think yeah. Barrington is a is a good guy. We were working at the Hill of Roses well after the campaign, but then stepped away for the special election. But you know, frankly, it, it's it's kind of hard to beat John Lewis. I told him that yeah. frankly when I was interviewing him. I was like, you know, I I you know I like everything. I'm I'm just you know I'm level setting. Like <laughs> this is gonna be a hard race here. How how is it gonna get done? Because like I knew that was the problem and the. The, the biggest problem of it all is that how they treated him afterwards to not yeah. put him in that like final five as just like a, a nicety. Like you're going to pick one. Like I know they're going to screw them, but like to not even have that gesture to like yeah, common courtesy. Yeah. Common courtesy. So it's like, I was like, damn, yo, that's, that's, that's fucked up. And then he, he did a heel turn a little bit. He's become a little bit more independent and a little bit more uh, a conservative bent. But I, Barrington's a good guy, in my opinion. And I love Barrington and I love being able to work with him. Yeah, I'm going to keep my eye on him for sure for future politics if if he's going to run at it again. But it's, it seems like he will. Um, but before we get too off topic here, um, I know it was inevitable that we uh, go into politics, but let's uh let's veer back on it here so before you got uh started with the hill of roses what what did you do between uh school and and the hill of roses Uh, i was a consultant at ibm i worked in the financial services industry primarily as a project manager but sometimes i would be doing process analysis um so you know i worked nine total projects across three years at ibm 
Nice. And that um, analysis probably helps uh, carry over into politics a lot, I'm sure. I think it does in the sense that you still need to think as how do you build an organization? How do you actually mobilize a movement? You have to actually plan things out. It's really important not to just focus solely on ideas, but how do you execute? That is super important because all the great ideas in the world have no value unless implemented. That is truly what we need to have in our pockets other than this being just a messaging tool, humanity is never going to be going forward. We need to actually get stuff done. And we've seen so much suffering. You know, I'm going to veer minorly back into politics. Why don't we have a stimulus bill? All this suffering is happening right now. But at IBM, we try to figure out how do we project plan? How do we build out the actual things that are necessary to influence change? We have to analyze processes as they work today. And so we are trying to do that, you know, right now. And that's how I inform myself as a project manager. But, you know, I, I certainly have had a, a variety of experiences. They really try to mold you into more of a generalist. Um, but, you know, there was certainly a lot of just getting to work on just project managing, reporting, how are we doing, communicating di across the different parts, making sure that everything on the project is operating efficiently. Um, and that we're not over budget, you know, that's, that's the basic job of what I do is overseeing to make sure we don't have a project blow up and that all pieces fit together. And you, uh, you mentioned to me before we hit record that you got laid off. Um, was that because of COVID-19 specifically, you think? Uh, well, I know for sure it was. Because, <laughs> uh, it's definitely a hard time as a consultant when the economy explodes. We're the first people to go. That's literally why you bring in a consultant instead of an employee is because you don't have to play, pay them unemployment benefits uh, because they have a very easy severage. And once the market dries up for the consultants, uh, they don't want to hold you on the bench for too long. And if they think it's going to be a long time kablooey, uh, let's just say uh, you're going out the door. And so July is when I had left IBM. And it was, you know, not too bad in the sense like this is when we had all the stimulus kind of in place for the extra unemployment. And, you know, we had uh, the opportunity to kind of in my spare time be able to build the hill of roses into a better thing because while I was trying to find new opportunities and be able to volunteer on other campaigns, I had a lot of be support to, with this unemployment system, frankly. Uh, so I think, you know, this goes into the whole nature of what is work and what you are trying to build out. Um, but, you know, there has certainly been opportunities to try and influence change that I've been trying to seize while trying to find what that next opportunity for myself is. And I have some options right now where I'm exploring them. But, you know, I, I really want to just focus on being able to make the Hill of Roses a really great opportunity to create something. And that's a really good segue here. So um, what inspired you to to create the Hill of Roses? When did that come about? Just tell me all about it. <laughs> so it happened in 2018. It was the night of my birthday, actually. I had the idea finally to try and be able to get off just Twitter as the platform of trying to communicate because it is infuriating to try to just not have a 
thorough explanation of thought to people when you are limited to just that medium of communication of your idea. Oh, yeah. And so I was thinking that night, it was like 2 a.m., about like what what am I going to be calling this thing? And eventually the name The Hill of Roses came because, you know, it was the callback to, you know, my roots in the sense of I, you know, lived at Rose Hill Road. And so it's a play on that. Secondly, it's a, you know, call to the symbology of what at the time, you know, I was a little bit more democratic socialist. I was part of actually the democratic socialist at that time. I'm no longer a member of the democratic socialist at this moment. But, you know, at that time, that was what I prescribed as the branding. But, you know, here's the benefit. I'm still like a social Democrat right now. And social Democrats also embrace the rose. Um, So the rose has that, you know, political symbology of where I currently lie. And then finally, you know, there's the just idea of an acronym being great sometimes just being able to call it Thor is a very nice thing in my opinion. Uh, (laughs) So I I like these factors to be uh, why we came to the Hill of Roses today. I know some people in the Yang gang kind of have this like skittishness to roses, but just know we're not all the same. Don't, don't judge all roses as the same. Like we are all individuals at the end of the day that we should be judging on our own merits do not discriminate by the crowd. There may be inherent biases that you're going to come into by being part of certain movements, but like allow yourself to judge people as they are. Yeah. I, um, I wish that we still had the openness that we, we did, you know, back when he was still running, um, to just accept anybody who, um, who agrees with, you know, even some parts, half of the uh, the movement or the idea, um, what have you. I think I'm a little more accepting because of my family being pro-Trump and having to deal with that uh, for as long as I did. Because, um, you know, I still love those people and I know that they're not inherently the same type of people as he is. I, I grew up with them, you know, so... Um, I had to just sit back and kind of bide my time and and interject and try to get them to listen. And for the most part, they have. My mother registered and uh, was going to vote for Andrew Yang um, because of me. (laughs) But I have other family members who are straight up like the ones that you mentioned. You know, you can spout all the truth and facts and proof in their face all day long. And they are still, for some reason, going to get mad at you and not believe anything you say. Um but it's it there's something to be said for a group of people who can accept others coming into play or uh coming into the conversation who may not agree with everything you say and may for the most part disagree with you but have a few things in common and um I miss that time and I I hope that it comes back for the Yang gang. <laughs> I certainly agree. I that was it was such a special feeling at that point when it was just trying to provide information and it was just even a friendly approach to those who are criticizing of it right now there has been certainly more of a gravitation towards uh, aggression towards those and i'm i'm not gonna say i'm perfect here i i think I, i've certainly had my moments where i am critical of people for saying really dumb stuff and sometimes maybe i get carried a little bit away but 
I think the core idea of humanity first and trying to maintain that approach is the most persuasive at the end of the day and the most sustainable at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I'm with you on that one. Um, especially lately, I've, I've had my moments where I've just wanted to blow up on a few people. Um, I have to rein it in a little bit. <laughs> you just try to remind yourself humanity first, but you know, we are at the same time all only human and, and this concept, while it's not new, it's new that it's trying to be presented to everyone and try to get them to accept that this can be a way of life. So um, we're all still learning and we will be for a very long time, um, trying to set an example for anybody who wants to try and, and live that way. And it's not necessarily one, uh, <laughs> it's not left, it's not right, it's forward. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it applies to everybody. Um, it's a good way of thinking. Yeah, I, it's just, I mean, if you were thinking about how you ever made a change in your mind, was it because just the people that, you know, were treating you meanly, that's where you went? Like, did you naturally gravitate to the people who just treat you badly? Maybe some people are. I'm not going to say that that doesn't exist out there, but I think most people like to go where people treat them nicely. Just, mm -hmm. th th I don't know. Maybe that's I a mean, radical <laughs> thought. <laughs> there's uh, there's definitely people who um, feed off the drama and uh, are attracted to that kind of um, negativity. It's, it's definitely weird. I've known people personally that are like that. Um, I'm not. And <laughs> I, I would like to think that those types of people are a small percentage of the populace. But, I mean, you never know these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a very true statement. Uh, it's, it's feeling a little wild. I, sometimes you wonder how much it's the amplification of social media and putting the loudest voices in the room. Uh, but I, you never know. Because, I mean, think about it. Isn't that what social media is? It's just all the people who feel like the whole world needs to know what they're saying. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm certainly privy to that myself. You have to have some self-reflection in that when you are a user of the website. You are basically someone who thinks, you know, the world really deserves to know what I'm thinking right now. <laughs> and, you know, um, so another thing I was going to ask you is, uh, you know, well, I guess I should lead into this a little bit. So um, you shared with me that you have Asperger's. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure if you've talked about that before on your platform. So I was very interested in what it's like to be a public figure in the public eye, especially in politics, um, and dealing with something like that. How How is that for you? Because you certainly don't um, there's a stigma around that, you know, like you should be able to tell when someone has this, but in my experience, you usually don't for the most part. Um, and you're definitely one of those people who, if you hadn't told me, I would have never guessed. So is there anything that you struggle with that may not be very apparent to those that listen to you? Yeah. So First, uh, for those that want to hear a lot more on this topic, I had a whole episode on this one topic with one of my guests, Srinath Jaganathan. He also has Asperger's, and so we got to have a whole conversation on that. So I encourage people, if they'd like to, to be able to watch that conversation. 
but to talk to you about like some of the things that it really, you know, influences, I think my life is that it's sometimes really hard to be able to pick up on, um, kind of some certain social cues, um, from people. I'm not exactly always, uh, good at reading, um, people face to face and trying to be able to detect, uh, exactly what people are, are, are feeling at that moment. Um, and I would also say sometimes can cause a little bit of, uh, uh, more black and white, um, thinking a little bit more of a tendency towards absolutisms, uh, for myself. And I would say it also comes just basically with some level of just a, a, a general social anxiety. Um, um, it, 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 it's a very hard description. I would say it was much more of an impactful thing towards the beginning of my life. It also was something that really made me struggle to be able to formulate uh, complete sentences and putting them together. I went through a, a lot of, you know, training to be able to overcome stutters that I had from this development. It was basically a way that just kind of slowed down my basic social skill development. But it, it, it basically you know, you train yourself so much, you kind of study these things because it is, it's a, it's a weakness that you have. And it's something that you've been told is a weakness. And so you practice the things that kind of are these problems to overcome it. And sometimes that can help you still reach a point of competency. Um, but yeah, I, as a public figure with this, you know, I think that's part of my responsibility to be transparent when I am uh, someone who is from a neurodiverse community. It's also one of the reasons why when I was in high school and I was trying to do some selection of scientific research that I wanted to do for this program that I was admitted to, you know, at first I was doing environmental science, but when I was, you know, needing to transition out of the subject due to um, a lack of feasibility in getting like a, a sponsorship uh, for the research, I eventually landed in trying to pursue the medical field. And I was able to get connected with what was, you know, the doctor of one of my um, friends at the time, um, uh, her sister had uh, what is known as Rett syndrome. And basically, you know, Rett syndrome and Asperger's are both of these things that are on the autism spectrum disorder scale. Um, you know, when you hear autism, basically on the scale, that's five. When you hear Rett syndrome, you're basically at the 10. And when you hear Asperger's, you're kind of at the one. So it's not, it's not as severe as some of these other cases that are out there. Um, Rett syndrome is something that primarily is a disorder that affects women. It affects one out of every 10,000 women. Um, it is a, you know, disorder that basically stunts almost all parts of the actual bodies of the person, whether it's the gastrointestinal uh, uh system whether it's the motor system whether it's the cognitive ability 
all parts of the body at that point have had some irregularities to that. And so what I got to study there at first was we were trying to find out detectors for heart problems for these Rett syndrome patients. And so, you know, at first I was able to try and compare whether someone was more likely to have bradycardia or tachycardia uh, depending on their uh, cognitive ability that we were trying to measure through their vocabulary. Um, so that was that was the first year that we were trying to do some studies uh, sponsored at Montefiore Medical Hospital. And then, unfortunately, uh, politics invades all points of life. Uh, and so there's office politics in hospital. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, uh, at that point, uh, they had to shut down the study because the cardiology department did not want to be able to give admission to, you know, using the facilities. Um, for the, the study that we were doing. And so then uh, we had to transition into trying to do uh, a comparison of still our data that we had in terms of vocabulary from our Rett syndrome patients and trying to, you know, compare it to motor ability. Are they more likely to be able to walk or not walk? And so, you know, we were trying to do this study and Weirdest thing, I, I still kind of hold a grudge over this. The, the, the person I was sponsoring under, just out of the blue one day when we were literally done, like we collected all the data we needed, we were literally taking the data and sending it off to the lab, and she just contacts me and says, okay, no, we're killing the study now. And I'm like, what? We're, we're like, we're at the finish line, and you're now too busy that you have to spike the study? And you basically wasted two years of my career when I have to try and go publish a paper and you're now spiking it and not allowing me admissible use of the data. It was a fiasco. Um, it, was, it was a a waste of two years of my life. And I basically was screwed on an opportunity to advance in that science field. Um, and so, you know, that led me to where I am today, though, because that actually led me to considering a lot more using my, you know, instead of my science skills that I was good in, trying to use more of my math skills that I was good in, in school. And as well, I had taken one economics course in my uh, senior year that I actually enjoyed. And that kind of sparked that interest coupled with at that point, you know, this was kind of right, kind of close to when the, the great depression was uh, from our uh, 2009 crash. Uh, you know, it was a real formative moment for my dad in trying to try and determine his career. He, so he, he was first, you know, a programmer. Now he tried to take this gamble at this point in time to try and get into options trading. Uh, and you know, that forced him to make a a real tough choice. Like, you know, was he going to be trying to stick it out in this career that was going to force him to be in like Philadelphia and then come back, uh, to New York just on the weekends, or was he going to be able to stay at home and work as a programmer? And he eventually chose to be going back because he ended up finding out along the way that he just kind of wasn't, you know, loving it as much as he thought it would be good. Uh, but every weekend he would bring home the puzzles, you know, to talk about with me because, you know, we have to catch up and, you know, he talked about what his training was. And so some of those factors, Um, you know, I enjoyed the puzzles kind of in a way. And so I was like, kind of appealed to this idea of 
potentially working in the finance industry in that sense of working in potentially trading. Um, but, you know, over time, you kind of run into things of like understanding why these financial crashes kind of occur through the educational process. And you kind of figure out that certain things are just not that appealing. It, it doesn't feel like you're doing a social good in a lot of ways uh, in the finance industry a lot of the times. Uh, so I've been trying to look for other callings where I can try and influence uh, more social good compared to private good. Um, because I think society is a little bit too unequal right now. And I think we need to try and help more people. And it's been all these services are getting good, um, you know, I don't know, opportunities just because they have, uh, you know, just that. financial backing. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And to go back to what you mentioned about the, uh, the office politics thing, that's, that's, that's a thing everywhere. I, I often refer to it as corporatism. Yeah. Um, but it, it's more office politics and it's uh, definitely contributed to getting me to where I am right now as well. Um, so before, well, I ended up volunteering for Andrew Yang because I had downtime um, between jobs. I just straight up quit a job that I had because I was done with the office politics and I ended up being an independent contractor and now I'm running a portion of a business for someone I used to be an account manager for at the past company. Um, so it ended up working out for me, but it was it was very much the office politics of not being transparent. They uh, would offer me things and increase my workload, and I would never get the things that were offered. Um, and sometimes I believe, knowing the company, they didn't have any malice in that, but they probably had a series of events that affected them business-wise or budget-wise that they felt like they couldn't be transparent with me on. Um, and so they just made up stuff, which never feels good, or they avoid the conversation, and it all comes down to office politics, you know. Um, who you know, how, how often have you come off as a trustworthy person? What can they say to you? Do you joke with them enough? You know, are you in their circles? It's it's crazy. So I just I was like, you know what? I'm going to be an independent contractor. I'm done with this nine to five crap. Uh, I'm going to get what I'm worth now. And uh, I took the plunge without even knowing whether or not that was going to work out for me. <laughs> um, so oftentimes it's it's situations like what you went through that really just push you in the direction you really need to be in. Um, and, and it helps you kind of see the light. For your own personal um not gain but where you actually fit in where where should you be going even if it's just for more personal growth yeah i mean to me what it kind of speaks to me is like there is some inevitability that you have some control over yourself but society has so much influence you know you can obviously be the one making choices along the way but, you know, you're kind of delivered what is happening around you. And so, like, I think fundamentally we do need to help each individual build themselves stronger. But we also need to focus on those social ties. That is how we, you know, choose what is the most sustainable path and actually getting that implemented. Because um, as you just said, like, you know, sometimes 
you don't want to be dependent on those environments where you have to be so reliant on others. You want it to be in a more environment where you could kind of be independent. And I think we should support people being able to make that choice. Um, and I think there's so much that I think we can relate to the Yang campaign that kind of helps deliver on that promise. Uh, some of these social benefits, which is where we still work together, is saying everyone deserves income. Everyone deserves health care. That is freedom to have that economic burden taken away from people. That, you know, ability to risk take is reliant on having, you know, a floor to be able to stand on. You know, if you're going to just crash through the net because you are now burdened with debt, that's going to be terrible, obviously. And we are going to have to handle some of the debt. But we need to focus on the long-term solutions of what is going to help people not get into those circumstances in the first place. Yeah. I mean, when I took that plunge, uh, one of the things I let go of was healthcare. And um, I'm in that, I'm in that bracket where I make too much to get assistance from state, but I don't make enough to pay for it on my own. So um, I haven't had healthcare in um, 13 months now, exactly. Um, I've been a little bit terrified with this whole COVID situation because of that. Um, And I'm finally, you know, exploring healthcare.gov and uh, I might be able to be in a position now where I could pay for something, but it was very much one of those moments where if I don't get contracts, if I don't get multiple contracts, if they don't agree to pay me enough, because when you're an independent contractor, you pay your own taxes. They don't take that out. Um, so you have to take that into account and also <laughs> make sure you're paying attention to that. So there's very real uh, opportunities for you to just completely screw your life up if you decide to go be an independent contractor if you haven't really thought it through. So for anyone listening, do your research before you do that. Um, <laughs> and I was I was very aware of that and I had help and um, I, would, I didn't feel alone. So I probably wouldn't have done it. And I had people encouraging me that, you know, I had the experience. I could go and do this. Um, and some of those people were Yang Gang, you know. Uh, so I can I can really contribute a lot of where I'm at in my life to them. So I guess it's inevitable that this whole episode will keep coming back to politics. Um, <laughs> but I had to let go of healthcare. I had to choose something that should be, you know, a given in in society or at least easier to find, and and not know when I was going to get it back. And um, I'm lucky that that's the only thing I had to let go of during all of this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm lucky to have, you know, some you know, Medicaid, you know, healthcare right now while still looking for the other jobs. But, you know, you're absolutely right. These are the, the financial burdens that we face. It, it is truly healthcare is the biggest burden, I think, on society right now, it, because not, not just it's like the total sum cost, but it's just, there's, the, it's the unpredictability of it. Um, the, the big spike, sometimes it's the fact that it's not even in your control. Like the sudden you get brought to somewhere out of network, like that kind of concept where everything is not in network. And just, if you are unconscious and someone calls like nine one one to try and save you, you could be bankrupted. Like, yeah, you should still be saved, but now you're bankrupt. Like, 
Now you get to just suffer. Like, th- like that's just like a, a crazy concept to me in, in, in its reality. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I obviously the, everything comes back to politics in a way because politics is basically how do we try to improve life beyond our individual action? It is the call to how does society interact with one another? It's also that point in time, like you mentioned 2016 being your your fire that uh, inspired you to get involved and um, 2020, well, 2019-ish, the beginning being my fire. And it's across the board, probably the, the one time in my life I can honestly say almost every single person I've spoken to, personal, professional, everybody's brought up politics in some way or another. So it's, it's the biggest movement to pay attention that I've seen in my lifetime. And it, it seems like people are finally realizing for the most part, I'm sure there's a group of people who don't realize, but um, <laughs> not calling out any names here, but um, they're realizing what the government, what the politicians, what even state level, local um, decision-making and policies, what, it does to your own personal life, what it actually does to you, what it can affect. And uh, people like me who spent most of my life thinking, I don't want to get involved in politics are finally realizing I have to, this directly affects me. And um, I think that's why now it doesn't matter who I bring on this show. Uh, Eventually the conversation will go into politics because I'm wanting you to talk about these hard things that you're dealing with. So if you haven't identified something related to politics these days that is making your life harder, you haven't really critically thought about it yet. And I think, you know, there's a couple influences to that too. Um, You know, first, I think it's the increase in the information economy, the simple ability to connect with one another makes us understand the pains of one another and it exposes us to issues that we otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to. It exposes us to how is there solutions to these things as well? What do we need to have happen? Um, when you're isolated, you kind of feel lost. You, you feel this almost localized sense, but like the more information that's out there, you start to realize, well, you know, what are the national problems? What, what is actually happening on a national scale? And I think that's kind of been a large call to action because I think, well, look at how the influence of the internet has played into politics. It's been to the cause of the rise of the progressive movement because it's been a source of young people being able to connect with one another, which generally trends to be a more progressive base. Uh, it also is the rise of movements like Trump, uh, these counterfactions. Um, this is a really interesting age to watch more and more information come into people's exposure and have that be a call to action to work on a more um, communal level, as a more societal level. Um, and, you know, you, you have to wonder, as a trend, do, where does that lead to over time? I hope more and more over time, that'll also help people think, huh, don't I need to concern myself with foreign politics too? And that's that's something that only recently I've been trying to dive a little bit more into in the news sources. So I, that's something that I hope we can try to get to. But right now it's so hard. And, you know, we, we find ourselves like coming back to potential Yangisms, but like, 
when people are just suffering in their everyday day-to-day lives, um, we have to, you know, get the financial boot off their throats for them to see up and see some of these long-term issues. Um, It's a way to get people engaged and it's a way to fund the necessary organizing to actually change the things we need. Yeah, for sure. So we're right almost coming up on an hour. So what I'm going to do now is, is do a little transition over to these uh, these Twitter questions and things that uh, that I have here. Um, I definitely, definitely, definitely want you back on the show for another episode sometime because I think there's a lot more uh, personally that you could talk about um, that people would be interested in. In and uh, I at least definitely want to hear more about. So for now, though, let's do our little transition. Um, and since you brought up social media specifically, we had um, Otto Thorpe ask about your frustration with engagement in the past. So I must have missed that whole conversation. Uh, but he mentioned that you've expressed frustration with your engagement on the uh, the social media platforms. I'm assuming YouTube as well. Um, and asked you if you had consulted consulted with any more popular creators for tips uh, on improvement. I mean, I, I certainly will have conversations and welcome, you know, looking into and studying what other people do, why I think they might be successful. But, you know, we are still trying to work within ourselves. And I think there's a lot of capable minds within the Hill of Roses to figure out what is best for us, because it is going to have to be more than just the media platform. And we'll have to study, you know, maybe there is inherent biases. I think sometimes people love the narrative of drama. Sometimes people love the narrative of just being a figurehead for one, you know, like candidate rather than trying to be, you know, issue focused and your own movement. Um, I, I think sometimes we've made these choices that might make it a little bit harder for us. Um, but I think is kind of necessary for the long term a picture for where we as a collective want to go. Um, like, for instance, as I said, you know, we welcome people who aren't Yang Gang into the Hill of Roses. That is something we completely support. Most of us right now are Yang supporters because I think those are the solutions that we come to. But we welcome people who were Bernie supporters. We'll welcome anyone into the fold who believes in the mission that we're fighting for. Um, and I think that's hurt some engagement, but obviously there's going to be some quality things. There's some inconsistency things. I, I, I completely admit to some of those faults. And I think there has been some learning processes that have gone along the way. And this is what it happens when you have like basically no money poured into this. Uh, this is something where, you know, over time when an organization grows, and simply has these opportunities as we're starting to build out some of these things to be able to fundraise, you know, we are going to be able to then put in more into the quality and then grow exponentially. That's, that's like the, the crazy thing of it all is like, all of this is volunteer work. So, you know, we are not, you know, particularly wealthy people. We're not billionaire finance people. Uh, so we don't have as much funding into the organization. But I think once we do, we're going to be able to put in a lot more content that's going to be engaging. But we also have taken some lessons. And that's why we are trying to make a change. And that's why we are taking a December to try and actually reformat the show. 
And so we are trying to come back in January with a, a new format compared to what we were doing presently. It's very similar in nature, but we think we need to make some quality improvements. And so compared to the twice a week format where we were doing primarily just interview formats with our guests for roughly 30 to 45 minutes, we want to try and make this a better presentation product by actually delivering a presentation of what is going on and on important issues coupled with our interviews and presenting it once a week, a combination of a show that you can kind of think of like the daily show or like last week tonight, you know, putting those together where you are actually exploring topics and really diving deep into the subject matter, as well as trying to bring on guests who are related to that show. And so there are lessons of just how you can take something and say, you know, what would make me want to watch this even more? And so, you know, one of the things that I've loved from being able to do like the premieres and live chats with my audience is that I get to watch my own content along with them. And I also get feedback from them. And I love that from my audience, that they're willing to do that. I like to listen to them to know where we can go as a movement. And I welcome all those voices. And I, I can realize sometimes when you have a, a, a movement that's not like just here's a full-time job for people. That's going to lead you to, you know, have some consistency things that'll have to be ironed out over time. Um, so we are trying to be a grassroots movement. And sometimes grassroots movements have to understand there's going to be flaws that happen along the way. And I think that means that sometimes we'll have to have some more tolerance. But that also means you have to be honest with yourselves and say, do you deserve the engagement yet? And so sometimes you have to have the humility that it's like it's frustrating that you're not getting as much traction as you'd like. Uh, but, you know, we think we've made some good content. We've brought on interesting voices that deserve to be heard. But we have to deliver what the fans want for them to want to engage. And it's sad. Maybe there is that factor that they just want drama. But we don't believe that's what we want to deliver. We want to change where people focus. We want to have people focus more on what unites us and more on what we can do rather than just the drama of it all. For sure. Yeah. I, um, I definitely don't have a whole lot of engagement on my show yet, but I completely contribute that to just how new it is. Um, I mean, I've been doing it for a few months now. I have a few episodes out, but you know, I'm new, I'm fresh in the game. I'm also trying to rebrand right now and revamp how my whole show appears to the general public. So yeah, like you said, there has to be a level of forgiveness there um, and understanding that, you know, things are going to happen, that changes are going to happen, changes are going to need to happen in some cases. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> in our, order, and honestly, yeah. sometimes I do wonder, like, specifically for Yang Gang, because, you know, I, I do wonder, because, like, even my own platform, just my personal Twitter page, you know, like, just, I have a lot more engagement with the audience compared to, I think the rose kind of throws a lot of Yang Gang people off. Just the symbology is just like, that's not the thing that they engage with. They see it and they, they kind of go the other way. So sometimes I, I do wonder if that's something that we have to work with, but I, I'm going to continue moving forward with it. I think we can do a lot of things to win people over and just expose them over time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. My uh, I created a show Twitter and um, I think I'm still like under 30 followers. It might've jumped up in the last couple of days, but uh, anything I tweet out there, like 
zero engagement. But if I tweet it out on my main page because of the yanking, I get a ton of interaction. My whole thing was I was trying to keep the two separated. But maybe I should rethink that whole (laughs) idea. Yeah. And I think it's like sometimes we have to take a step back um, and assess. But sometimes it's just you got to plug right ahead. And I think it's like it is kind of on a case by case basis. And I think sometimes you have to manage kind of where the team is. And, you know, right now, understanding the human needs of the team, especially when you're working a volunteer organization. So, you know, we have a young team. That means a lot of people have finals weeks. Uh, That means we have to deal with the human factors in people's lives. A lot of people feel a little burnt out at the exact moment because of so much of the national politics, and they just want to enjoy some of the holidays. And so you have those human factors where you say, you know, at the end of the day, you do want to build up the movement. But you also want to make sure that those who are building the movement aren't being burnt out from supporting the movement. We want this to be truly like a family that we have been building here. And I think a lot of people within the organization have described that as we've gone through the team activities to try and define ourselves and our brand over time. Um, And I think that is a key factor is that we want to make sure that those that are building the movement to cause change are not being burnt out in the process yeah um that's actually a fair point (laughs) and i also say i want i want the people who are helping build it to really actually be interested and not i'm not just doing it because they know me from the yang gang you know i want you to actually be interested in the show and the people that are coming on um and and the whole point of it all uh in order to get engaged um so (sighs) Next question here. Uh, You've been the subject of quite a lot of humanity thirst tweets. (laughs) (laughs) You have, especially in the last week or so, um, at least from what I've seen. So I thought we might just talk for a second about that whole uh, sub movement, if you want to call it that, and uh, (laughs) see what your thoughts are Uh, on that whole thing. Okay. Uh, well, I think it is a, a lovely concept of free expression that people can certainly choose for themselves, depending on how comfortable they are to share things. I welcome it from anyone who does it. Uh, I think it's humorous at the same time. Uh, but I don't know. It's, it's not myself. I'm a little bit more private. I like to, you know, you know, increase the value of when I get to share those things with those that are significant to me. I get to share it privately. It has much more value. I wouldn't want to do an OnlyFans thing because that's still a public private thing. Like that's a, it's a weird thing to want to be, you know, judged on my body. I'd much rather be judged on my mind. (laughs) You and me both actually. (laughs) And I agree with you on all points um so far we've been lucky enough for the humanity thirst movement not to have not uh, offended anybody um i do see that there's a very very clear fine line that um and there's some good looking people out yeah. there good job <laughs> yes. guys <laughs> very much so so last question i saved it for last because i assume this might this might take a little while um just to explain the lead up into why this question was asked so we had Eddie Chu ask <laughs> about your feelings on the recent Fogate or Fogate controversy and being conned into buying <laughs> buying what was definitely not actually fa. So I did a little I did a little background on this one. 
Um, I have in front of me the definition <laughs> of what this is actually supposed to be, along with the definition of ramen, which a lot of people were saying that's what you had. <laughs> so for anybody who's unaware, uh, I'm not even sure where it started, but uh, John was encouraged to go out and try this um, this food for himself and, and post pictures and share his opinions on it. And whenever this happened, everyone um, collectively decided that he was not actually eating pho. And it's been, a, it's been a whole thing ever since. So before I get into the definition, what are your feelings on this controversy? <laughs> so first, I just want to say sometimes it's great to just have some fun with people. So first and foremost, I want to recognize that they are different things. And the original statement is that they are basically the same. That is a very different concept. What I have acknowledged at all time is that there are slight differences in it, but I basically treat them as the exact same thing. And when I was creating, which was the origin of this controversy, my top 10 foods list, I put them as co-number ones. Because I said they're basically the same and I'm not going to decide between them. And so they said that I'm not allowed to do this. And so the whole time, this has been an expression of poking fun at the not willing to just allow like co-number ones on a top 10 list. This whole time, this is, this is the basic concept. And largely, it's a concept of freedom expression of what food is right. People canceling people for pineapple pizza all these concepts we have welcomed into a concept called the freedom foodies. We understand that there are no wrong food takes, just food opinions. This is the concept that you can enjoy whatever you want to enjoy, and you are entitled to do that, and I will not judge you for that. It is just not my taste. <laughs> I agree with you. I love food um, in general across the board. Um and the two of them are very similar. So I could see why you would put them side by side. So I, like I said, pulled up the definitions. We're going to go over them right now. So definition of ramen is uh, quick cooking noodles typically served in a broth with meat and vegetables. That's literally what you can find on Wikipedia, quick Google, whatever. It's also labeled as typically Oriental cuisine, not any specific culture, just Oriental in general. And then pho is listed as a Vietnamese soup, typically made from beef stock and spices to which noodles and thinly sliced beef or chicken are added. So... The two are very similar, even by definition. Yeah. <laughs> That's my exact point. And here's the thing. You know, one of the most recent parts of Gate has been the concept of this picture that I have taken of the pho that I was served. When I go to a restaurant and order pho, and this is what I am delivered, what are you, me, what are you expecting of me? <laughs> like, they so interchangeably use the concept that... I, a consumer, should treat them basically the same. Yes, they come from different roots and origins, but dishes adapt and certain bastardizations occur. They are basically the same concept. And for everyone out there who's offended by me calling it faux, I'm so American and I'm Southern and I'm working with an accent here that just cannot, <laughs> for the life of me, make pho flow in a sentence properly. <laughs> so I apologize. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. But yeah, no, if you order something from a restaurant, they're supposed to be, you know, for the most part, unless you're a chef yourself who specializes in the thing, you expect the restaurant to provide you what you asked for. Um, so I'm with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, some of this is good natured fun and ribbing to kind of poke the fun at the, the, um, kind of the authoritarian taste and like saying you have to be a purist on these things. I think people need to have their own taste and just say, you know what? They're basically the same. Let's just acknowledge it. They're basically the same. Don't nitpick. They can be cone number ones. Yeah. It, it comes back to a question that I've seen asked on um, a couple of uh, conversations online. And I think there's a podcast that literally had the first episode about it, but like it's cereal a soup. Basically it yeah, is. Great so, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very it's very honest i'm gonna say no though um because <laughs> i don't believe the the broth is a, a considered technically a, a stock yeah okay <laughs> but but here's another one hot dogs they are not sandwiches sandwich they are not sandwiches <laughs> only because i'm clearly being bought off by big hot dog here because that's what they decided they said themselves, nope, not a... Are you familiar a, with the, the podcast I'm speaking of? <laughs> <laughs> it's literally called, Is a Hot Dog a Sandwich? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the classic food question. It is. And you know what? It's, it's not. It's its own thing. It's not two pieces of bread. It's one bun. <sighs> that's a good point. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've covered everything here uh, for now, at least. Like I said, I want you to come back on later. Hopefully everybody got a kick out of hearing you talk about um, these questions. And the next time you come on, I'm going to do it again. We'll see what other fun questions we get out of it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, Lena. It was a pleasure being able to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hard Truth. So glad that you could join us. For more information on how to get a hold of this week's guest or ways to support them, please check the description below. And as always, check out patreon.com slash hardtruthpod for ways to support me. Thank you so much. Your support is everything.